All right, joining me today is William Morgan, the CEO of Buoyant and creator of Linkerd. Welcome to the show, William. Thanks. It's great to be here. All right. Well, we're going to get to some fun conversations about uh, cloud native, the CNCF, uh, some, of course, uh, Linkerd, and a much more. But before we get to that, you sort of have, uh, I'm going to say, a software-defined talk record. Uh, we had uh, Chris uh, Anasek on a while back. He did a stint at Twitter. And I asked him at the time, I was like, wow, you have an incredible Twitter handle, CRA. He had the three-letter uh, <laughs> uh, Twitter handle. But you, you have bested him by one. You have I, I, what I would assume is the shortest handle you can get. You have the two-letter Twitter handle. So my question is, how does one get the two-letter Twitter handle on Twitter? Yeah, so you can actually get a one-letter handle, too. And I've had friends who, you know... Who oh, really? I just that. assumed that would be like... Not allowed. So you, there's nope. actually a one letter. Okay. All right. So we'll yeah. have to find a third guest to, to, to beat your record. <laughs> right, to finally surpass me. No, but it's a curse. It's a curse because, you know, a lot of people who are on Twitter don't really understand how this thing works. And so, you know, I, I get uh, a lot of mentions for people trying to talk about like WrestleMania or <laughs> waste management or like, you know, there's some Welsh something or other. So, <laughs> It's not actually a great idea. I just thought it was fun. But the, the way I got it was I worked at Twitter, you know, and I worked at Twitter almost a decade ago, you know, um, at a time where, you know, the rules were very loosey-goosey. And, you know, if you asked the right person, you said the nice things, they'd be like, oh, yeah, here you go. Here's an unused handle. Why don't you just have that one? So Nice. Okay. So there was a kind of they did they, I assume they kept those, those, the short ones to themselves. And then, like you said, the sort of the back channels is how, is how you got it. At, you know, the policies have evolved over time. But yes, <laughs> at that point in time, you know, if there was an unused one and you were friendly, allow you to take it to give it know. to you all right well it's good well i feel like this should be part of the i don't know the twitter wikipedia the the untold <laughs> stories i feel like right. i don't know of course the stories of twitter are getting uh there's gonna be more and more of them to come so all right well good well congratulations on you know all, i guess all the problems that will uh it'll have in your life but it's still kind of a cool <laughs> a cool little artifact of, of being in tech maybe, maybe being in tech for too long maybe it's a sign for all yeah of us, yeah so. right well actually a lot of what we're doing today at buoyant and with linkerty all stem from twitter too so you know it wasn't just the handle i got you know, all sorts of interesting outcomes from that. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, that kind of like leads us into it. So let's kind of start off. I thought we, cause you've been at it a while, right? And you've been around cloud native, you've been doing it since Twitter and certainly been involved with the CNCF since, I don't know, almost the beginning or maybe the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was like kind of a good place to like, maybe just kind of like check in and get your kind of historical perspective on where the CNCF is today. So I kind of look at it, I was looking at the landscape and kind of thinking through like, you know, kind of how do I summarize it? And I think of it as sort of kind of falling into these kind of two camps at this point. We have a large set of platforms, right? And we've got a lot of the hyperscalers like AWS and GCP and, you know, VMware and Red Hat providing kind of like, you know, everything you could want or trying to provide everything you would want around uh building a cloud native, you know, if you will, platform, right? And then we have kind of the, the set of projects, all the various open source projects inside of the CNCF, and they're all categorized in, you know, a bunch of different ways. So I think of like projects versus platforms. And I think when people kind of think about the CNCF or they think about cloud native, I think that's often the first question, right? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to try to adopt a platform or a project. So I just thought like kind of a broad question for you is like, how do you think of it? Like under that framing, uh, feel free to challenge that. And then two is you sort of guide people into, you know, the, the world of cloud native. How do you kind of guide them to figure out what they should be picking and how do they make decisions about how to utilize this to like get some business outcome accomplished? Yeah. Yeah. So two, uh, two good questions. So the first, you know, the way I think about it is cloud native is kind of intimately tied with, Kubernetes. And the reason that is important in this context is because Kubernetes in some ways is kind of a reaction to the one size fits all, you know, paths approach that preceded it. So mm -hmm. if you look at something like Google app engine or, you know, some of the other alternatives there, they were one-stop shops for like, here's everything you need. Here's the complete platform from developer to ops to security. It's all in this one thing. And, and Kubernetes came along and said, we are actually going to just solve one portion of that, you know, and we're going to have some well-defined boundaries. And then the rest of that, you have to fill in yourself. And that was, you know, obviously a very different approach. That was kind of like the, you know, the, the Lego approach. And I think there's this very famous uh, tweet from Kelsey Hightower where he said, 
Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. Absolutely. Uh, yep. and, and I think um, so whenever you're coming into this ecosystem, building a platform is what is in your mind, you know, like ultimately the people we see the most successful with cloud native, their goal is to build a platform and it's, it's an internal platform, you know, in service of their developers. So, uh, you know, typically if you're, you know, the ones who are really successful have a platform team, they're platform owners, we're, they have this mentality of like, we're building this effectively an internal path for our developers, but we're not having it all prescribed to us. We're, we're starting with this piece and then we're adding this piece and we're picking this piece. So you start with Kubernetes, you add a service mesh, you add a CI, CD system, you add a, you know, a, a repo, you add X and Y and Z, and that is your, your platform. So that. And that approach, you know, has informed kind of everything, every aspect of this space. It certainly informed the design of, of Linkerd, which is the project that I work on. But I think it's also informed just the fact that that ecosystem is so rich. Like, why are there 10,000 things in here and like so hard to keep track of and all these new categories and new projects? You know, in part, it's because Kubernetes kind of set that tone early on and said, we are going to do this portion of the puzzle we're, we're here are our, our boundaries and it's not everything you need and the ecosystem can fill in the rest of the blanks. Yeah. So how do you think of it around? Cause I think that's, it, you really hit on it. Like, you know, if you want to build a platform for sure, it seems like that's the way you're going to start. Now, how do you reconcile that? Or do you reconcile that with sort of, let's just call it like the batteries included model that, you know, many of like some of the ones I just named, like they often provide like, Hey, just come here and use our platform. Do you see those as so, sort of complete or do you still feel like even in those cases, even like, you know, batteries are included, but you still got to like do a lot of assembly. Like, do you, um, cause I think that's something people, you know, when I talk to them, they kind of, you know, they kind of struggle with sometimes they'll be like, should, or they'll ask a question that's sort of like weird. They'll be like, should I use uh linker D or AWS? And you're like, well, wait a minute. Like that's like, you know, I mean, like it's a broad question here. You have to kind of think it through. So I don't, how do you navigate that path? Yeah. So I think there's, I don't think there's a, a, a set answer there, you know, and part of this is there's a pendulum that swings back and forth and kind of like our willingness as an industry to take on the one size fits all solution and, you know, have kind of the ease of that at the expense of flexibility, you know, kind of swinging to the other side of like, uh, I need control over every one of the, every aspect here. And uh, I need, you know, and I'm willing to, to, to pay the cost. So you know, ever since the dawn of cloud computing way back in, you know, the land of the dinosaurs, you knew when you invest in this cloud platform, you know, they were going to do their best to lock you in, right? And you're going to do your best to like not have that or, <laughs> right. or to embrace that, right. right? And the way, but the way they were going to lock you in was by, uh, you know, by having these really valuable things that were very easy to use, right? So that's, yeah, uh, I, I don't think there's a, an easy answer. There's a lot of, answers that are there's a lot of difficult answers i guess yeah. and it really well, my advice would be what are your actual requirements what is important to you and is it velocity is it flexibility you know and every organization is going to have a different answer even at different points in time yeah and i think you know you you hit on like one of the most important ones there is sort of like you know lock-in right do you look at lock-in as something you're trying to fight off because you just want to have maximum control or do you look at it as something like yeah this is great because now it's all taken care of me and i'm just gonna have it done and you know the I, there's really not already like you know that's a good question i think lock-in is always portrayed as bad but it's more like what do you want right and you know i as someone that sometimes i like to uh if you will assemble things in my life that i really care about and then sometimes i just want to buy the thing that everyone has that is like good enough and like never use, you know, never think about the internal yeah. components ever again. Um, yeah. And, you know, in some ways enterprise software is, you know, just like that. So, actually. yeah, I mean, I think lock-in is, is a form of tech debt, right? There are reasons to incur tech debt. Hey, we're moving fast. Hey, we don't care about innovating there. Hey, we need to save our brain juice for this area over here. And then there's reasons where, you know, you really want to pay down your tech debt or you want, want to avoid it. It's, it's a, it's the fundamental software engineering trade-off. Yeah, absolutely. Good. All right. Well, good. Well, that's, you know, hopefully that helps everyone at least a way to think about, you know, if you're going to go the platform or the projects, um, you know, method, if you will, of adopting cloud native. Now to kind of dive into some specifics, kind of, you know, the world you are by, by far and away the expert at is kind of the world of uh, service mesh and uh, Linkerd. So before we get in there, let's just, you know, I think most people know, but it's like, honestly, every time I go back, I reread all the definitions and stuff. So let's just level set. So everybody is on the same page. Just kind of give us the high level definition. We'll assume we've got Kubernetes. We've made that choice. 
We've built, uh, we know what containers are. We package things up, but we're starting to figuring out the, the world of networking, let's just say, right? Mm-hmm. And we know, um, we've heard service mesh and we've heard service proxy and we're trying to make sense of that. So why don't you just kind of give us the base level definitions of what are both and kind of like, what should I know about that as I'm kind of going into, you know, if you will, learning about this area? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two two definitions that I like to use. The first is, what does this actually give me? And I think in many ways, this is a more important one, though, like, how does it work is like the, you know, kind of interesting nerdy one. But what, so I, I talked about how Kubernetes kind of has these boundaries, right? It, it provides, you know, up to this point and then beyond that it's up to you. So what a service mesh does is it's a, it's a, it's a layer that you add on top of Kubernetes. It's effectively a, a networking layer and it adds a set of, uh, uh, primitives and a set of guarantees around security, around reliability, and around observability of the traffic between the components that are running in your cluster. So when you're adopting Kubernetes, you know, unless you're doing a lift and shift or unless you're doing something, you know, kind of, you have very unique requirements, you're building stuff as microservices. You're building multiple services that are running on Kubernetes and are talking to each other within the cluster. And that communication Kubernetes provides the bare minimum. It says, I will allow you to establish TCP connections from point A to point B. <laughs> but, you know, what are those requests? How are you securing them? How are you dealing with partial failures? Like Kubernetes doesn't really handle any of that. So that's what a service mesh does, right? It gives you this layer of observability, of security and reliability centered around when A is talking to B, you know, and B is talking to C and C is talking to D and kind of all these, you know, richer kind of microservice, you know, patterns. How do we understand what that communication is? How do we monitor it? How do we uh, shift it without having to change application code? How do we secure it? How do we encrypt it? How do we make sure that, you know, A is only talking to B if A is allowed to talk to B and so on. And, and kind of the important part here is, right, I'm talking about this as a platform layer. You're not changing the application to do this. The developers ideally are unaware of the service mesh, right? That's like part of the platform in the same way that, you know, they know Kubernetes is there, but they're, they're not Kubernetes experts and nor should they be. Okay. And so, you know, one of the listener questions, cause I asked, you know, and I told people we're going to do an interview with you. So throughout this, I'll try to like interject some of them. So somebody asked and you kind of hit on it sort of like uh, Kubernetes offers like the most basic form of networking. So like maybe a natural question is like, well, could, could or should the service mesh just become a feature of Kubernetes sort of just built in? Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, any of these things could be a feature of Kubernetes. Kubernetes could ship with a CI/CD system. Kubernetes could ship with, you know, uh, image scanning. But that's not what, that's not like the ethos of Kubernetes, right? It set that boundary mm-hmm. around itself and it said, the rest of this, you know, the rest of the, the, the huge task of how do I safely deploy and manage, you know, a modern application on the cloud, the rest of that is going to be solved by the ecosystem. So yes, it could be, but no, it's not going to be. Right. So ultimately, it's just sort of an architectural choice. I think maybe that's the thing. It's like, hey, you know, just what you said, I think before, like, hey, this is, the, this is the area that Kubernetes provides, and then everyone else go innovate over here. So that makes sense. Um, now, what about some other things? So let's hit on, so you did a great definition of service mesh. Maybe hit on service proxy. And if you want to also kind of maybe distinguish, if you feel it necessary, like API management. So that's something that kind of comes up people are asking about. So like a service proxy and there's this world yeah. of API management. Like, how do you think of that part of the world? So service proxy is like kind of a weird category. And I kind of feel like it's not a super useful one. It's, it's one that came up by necessity because there were projects like Envoy, you know, which were these very full featured kind of modern network proxies distinct from, you know, the NGINXs and the Apaches of, of the past that were very good at, uh, you know, that, that basically were designed to live in these dynamic environments, mm-hmm. right? So like when you have a containerized system, you know, well, Kubernetes is allowed to kind of add and remove pods at will and to reshuffle them and give them new IP addresses and, you know, Envoy and, and other service proxies live in that world. But, you know, fundamentally they're just, they're proxies. So I don't know that there's anything really service-y about them. Um, but that's, you know, that's the name for the category. Um, as opposed to service mesh, which actually is like, a, 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 you know, a, a fairly new and distinct pattern. Um, API gateways, you know, I think the distinction there, and obviously these things are all, you know, there's a lot of overlap, but I, I think the distinction there is API gateways uh, traditionally have been uh, kind of 
thought of, uh, thought of as how do I manage traffic coming into the cluster? So I have this cluster of, you know, um, of services that I've written and then, you know, the outside world of like calling, right. It's calling mm-hmm. those services and I know who the user is. So I'm going to do rate limiting because this user is like only allowed to issue a thousand requests a minute or whatever, or I'm going to do authentication, you know, cause this user is an iPhone and, you know, I'm using the OAuth token or whatever. Like those are all kind of API gateway concerns. Service mesh is much more focused on like, what are the internal, you know, A is talking to B. Well, it's not really about, you know, A, a is a user. It's like A is a service, right? And B is a service and there's authentication and authorization and, and so on concerns. It's at a different level of the stack. It's, it's decoupled a bit more from the business logic. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap in these things and like service meshes and, and ingresses, you know, which is kind of like the Kubernetes name for how do I handle traffic coming into the cluster um, uh, are increasingly kind of converging and, you know, some service meshes have built in ingresses and, you know, yada, yada. Okay. So, yeah. So I think there's, it is one of those things is like a lot to take in, right, for, for people that now... Um, maybe coming up a level, because I did ask as well, sort of like, you know, why are people embracing service meshes or what's the, what kind of drives them to? So two use cases, I kind of wanted to get your take on, I guess the two that popped up uh, that people mentioned the most is one is just authenticating service to service, right? Mm-hmm. So it seemed to be like, hey, I, I want to, you know, I've, I've, if you will, I built an application, maybe I've got enough services now and I need to like keep track of who's talking to who and, you know, kind of control that. And then the other one was, um, it sounds kind of simple, so probably hard, right? It's encrypting the traffic, right? So this mm-hmm. seemed to be like, if you sort of maybe didn't have anything, you just sort of like, I'm just using flat old Kubernetes as is, um, that these are the two use cases that come up that maybe, if you will, uh, get people to actually adopt a service mesh. So any thoughts on those use cases? And then I bet you've got a bunch more. Like, what are the other things that problems people have that like, oh, when I run into this problem, I should be thinking service mesh? Yeah. So, you know, definitely the security and compliance stuff is a big driver for service mesh adoption. Like, you got to imagine, especially for larger companies, you're deploying stuff in the cloud. And like, when you were deploying stuff on prem on premises, you know, you controlled the wires, you controlled the machines, you could look at them, you own them. They, <laughs> they lived in, you know, cages and you had the key to the cage, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're deploying stuff in the cloud and it's still the same sensitive, you know, application, but it's running on machines that you don't control on a network that you don't control. And maybe it's being shared with your competitors, you know? So all those guarantees you used to have, you know, kind of at the physical level or at the hardware level, now you have to, you know, transform into, into software. So encryption and transit is a big one. You know, um, uh, the way the service, you could do that in like eight different ways, right? We've had IPsec and, you know, nowadays there's like things like WireGuard and whatever. I think where the service mesh shines is when you move from just encryption to also authorization and authentication. You know, that's when things like MT, mutual TLS or MTLS come into play where you can say, okay, I don't want to just encrypt it. I also want to ensure that when A talks to B, service A talks to service B, they both can validate that, yes, you are A and yes, you are B, right? So that's kind of the authentication component. And, and yes, I trust you enough to talk to you. And also the authorization level. So is A allowed to talk to B? Is is this part of A allowed to call this, you know, HTTP call on B or, or whatever it is? So service mesh gives you a nice way of kind of having this end-to-end um, model for not just... Uh, not just encryption, but also authentication and authorization between every component of your, of your services. Again, in a way that is like decoupled from the application, right? So the developers are not writing the code saying, you know, validate that that is service B, you know, and then, you know, call this, but don't do this. And, you know, like it all gets kind of pulled out to the, to the platform. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I think so, as we kind of think about it going forward, it's sort of like, you know, whether you're a greenfield application, it's like maybe you got it all working on Kubernetes, got it working on your laptop or in your small lab in your safe environment, right? And you sort of like, now I'm going to like go to start and deploy it. I think a bell should go off like, okay, how am I going to do all of this? That's a chance like now go do the work to get your service mesh picked out and put in your platform. Hopefully it's all encapsulated, you know, kind of hidden away from the developers, but do that before you like, you know, start putting everything on the internet and, you know, and there's just like lots of security uh, holes going there. So I think that's sort of like to me or a brownfield application. This is kind of Mm -hmm. the world I, I spend more time in. It's sort of like, Hey, if you're bringing over an application and you do have a, a set of secu- a security team or a set of guidelines, right, that you kind of want to be thinking up front before I do this, 
And I, as part of my platform, I got to answer all of these questions and the service mesh is the answer to all of that. Sorry, I know you want to say something. Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. And like, are the, you know, the customers, buoyant customers and Linkerd adopters are, you know, it's companies that are dealing with health data, you know, PII, dealing with financial transactions, like these are all incredibly sensitive bits of data. And if you're deploying that to the cloud, like you need to have a level of assurance either because you've got like regulatory requirements or, you know, <laughs> often because you have regulatory requirements. Plus you have a security team that's like, oh shit, we need to like really, you know, get this under control um, that are solved by the service mesh. And the one thing I'm realizing I didn't talk too much about, but I think is critical to understanding this, especially if you're coming at it from a networking perspective, is that the service mesh operates largely at layer seven. So, you know, we've had, if you if you are familiar with the much, uh, much used and much maligned OSI model of like mm-hmm. networking, you know, basically <laughs> the short story is, you know, layer four, you know, and layer seven, those are the two interesting bits. And layer four is like, okay, we've got, you know, TCP packets. I'm establishing a TCP connection, you know, between A and B. And then layer seven is, you know, oh, all, whatever the application does. Right. And in the modern world where all of our components, all of our services in this cluster are talking to each other over HTTP or over gRPC, you know, and uh, IP addresses are kind of this this fungible, ever-changing thing. And we have these, uh, you know, requirements around micro-segmentation and zero trust and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Layer 7 ends up being the really interesting part because that's where you actually can say, oh, you're service A and you're calling this method on this, you know, this gRPC method or this HTTP method over here, and therefore, you know, we have to look it up in this authorization policy. All that, all that stuff has to happen at layer seven. So, we can, you know, you're not looking at the IP addresses of the packets anymore. Like that's, that's like a layer that's buried way below the surface at this point. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, language of business, the area of business. Like what are these things doing? Right. I don't <laughs> great that they're all packets, but I need to kind of ultimately understand what the business is. So that's good. That's a good clarification. So, all right. So hopefully that's a good background for everybody, you know, service mesh. And I think we know why we need it. So let's, let's dive into your world now, linker D. So, you know, like, like any good uh, comic book movie, we should start with the origin story. Like, you know, so <laughs> what, uh, uh, where'd it come from? Why did you ultimately decide to start Linkerd? Tell me the story. Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, well, so this also goes back to, you know, what we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, which was my time at Twitter. Um, you know, uh, I was there early enough where Twitter was just going through this big transformation from this monolithic Ruby on Rails application that was falling over all the time that we kind of lovingly called the monorail. Um, and then and, for those listening, this would be the, 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 the fail whale, right? Yeah, that used exactly. to be like, that would be for those right. that don't remember, it's uh, like a was funny looking whale that would just be like, well, the service is down and you would just wait. So right. go ahead. Yeah, that was, it, it, like <laughs> fell over so often that people like kind of in, almost enjoyed it, you know, that have like, fail yeah, whale no, you just kind of knew it's like, like, Oh, the yeah. fail. Well, I'll yeah. just be back. I'll come back in 20 minutes. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, lovable old Twitter uh, down again, you know, let's check that. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. kind of like that, which is funny, but <laughs> right. yeah. You know, so which speaks to, you know, kind of the cultural phenomenon it was, but you know, uh, that's not a great way to run a business. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no. All right. so when I got there, we were just at the kind of starting point of saying, okay, we need to do something better. And over the next couple of years, what we did was we turned it from this monolithic Ruby on Rails, you know, uh, program into uh, what what I would now describe as microservices running in an orchestrated and partially containerized environment, right? It's like, it wasn't Kubernetes. We didn't have that back then. It wasn't even Docker. It was just kind of happening back then. But the patterns were exactly the same. And the big lesson that we learned from that transformation was, understanding and controlling the communication between these components suddenly became this critical, this absolutely critical component of being successful in this, you know, in this microservices approach. And so that, you know, in, in Twitter's world, that actually took the form of a library. So it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a proxy, it wasn't a service mesh. But when we, uh, when my co-founder and I left Twitter, we, we, took that idea and we said, okay, well, how do we apply this to the rest of the world? Well, we can't just take this library, you know, because first of all, it was written in Scala. So like, who the hell you know, <laughs> wants that? And second of all, like, we, you know, there's this whole kind of nascent but 
quickly blossoming industry around containers and Kubernetes and things mm -hmm. like that. And we're like, well, how do we make this relevant to that world? Because it sure seems like that's where, you know, kind of modern software development is going um, or software operations is going. And so that was kind of the origin of Linkerd. It's like, take, you know, V1 was literally take that library, take that Scala library from Twitter and wrap it up as a proxy and deploy it as a container next to your application, you know, and, you know, it's, it's gone through a lot of, uh, of refinement and rewriting <laughs> since then. But that was the, yeah, that was the origin. So was this, I was this before the CNCF, I assume, right? So this is like Kubernetes is out and you're like, so are you writing basically with the intent of like kind of integrating with containers and Kubernetes or is that sort of still not happened yet? Like you're, that's going to happen in the future. Like how, did, how, did, what was the timeline there? So in the very, you know, this was 2015 was kind of when we really got started. And I think early 2016 was the first release. So at that point, Kubernetes was there, but it was very, very young. Okay. Mesos was there. That was like the mature solution. Uh, Nomad was there. You gotcha. know, so our initial target actually was all three of those environments. And, you know, we did all these interesting things to provide this layer of abstraction over that. And then, you know, a, a whole bunch of complicated stuff happened and like the Scala library turned out like no one really wanted to run the JVM, even if it was containerized. Okay. You know, and it had it was kind of memory hungry, you know, like you could only squeeze it down to like 150 megs. And people were deploying these Go microservices that were like 50 megs and they're like, well you can't just add it, you know. <laughs> we're gonna quadruple our memory usage because of this like proxy that's supposed to be transparent and and you know under the hood. So we had to rewrite stuff and and as part of that, you know, and this is now gosh, circa 2018, um, we, we took a step back and we said, okay, what, you know, what is the right thing to do and what's the right environment to target? And at that point, Kubernetes was really taking okay. off. So we just focused on Kubernetes. We rewrote everything off of Scala and off of the JVM. We rewrote it in, in uh, Go and in this very young language called Rust, which was like a big gamble at the time. And that's kind of the modern version of, of Linkerd. Very focused on Kubernetes, almost exclusively focused on Kubernetes. Um, with some asterisks in there, uh, and then written in, in Go and increasingly uh, written uh, in Rust. Okay, so you kind of like qu quite the ride there. We'll call it this, I don't know, the cloud native roller coaster. So that's good. Yeah. That's, uh, that's yeah. interesting. But the TNTF was also just kicking off, and I think Linkerd was like the fifth project. Except that's what I was thinking. Like, I thought it was. I thought it was like, yeah. like, very, like I, you know, I couldn't remember like which, which started beforehand. But yeah, but obviously you're, you're all in there together now. So it's, it's yeah. all, you know, it's, uh, it's got the big box. If you look at the CNCF landscape, you have one of the big boxes. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, we're, <laughs> you know, we're now graduated. Here. Yeah, we're yeah, you graduated. You're like, you know, so too, like in, in your category, I tell you, that's that's the extent of the analysis. Like some people get small boxes and some get big boxes, and right. it's sort of like yeah. you can kind of like, oh yeah, that one's been here for a while. Um, so now the kind of the just kind of right off the website right here. So it's like uh, it says Linkerd, right? You said basically it helps add observability, reliability, and securities to Kubernetes applications without code changes. So that sounds yeah. good, right? Like we all like that. I mean, who? That sounds I'm, incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, oh we're gosh. all signing up. So why don't you talk about like kind of go like a level detail? Like I'm bought off on it, right? I I I, I built my application. I don't. I know I need to do all the things that we some of the use cases we talked about, and I want all the things I just mentioned. So what do I do? I, like how do I get get Linkerd in, into my system? Yeah. So there's like you know the easy way to do it, and then there's the hard. <laughs> The hard way, the easy way, which is like the demo way is, you know, you, you're literally just running one or two commands and those commands output some YAML and you like apply that YAML to your cluster and you're done. The hard way involves like Helm and like, okay, we're going to do this right. And like, oh, GitOps and, you know, the, the effect is the same, but it, it takes a little more effort. But, you know, in all cases, basically what you're doing is you're adding to your cluster Linkerd's control plane, which is small and kind of sits off in the namespace somewhere. And part of that control plane is this thing called the proxy injector. And when you then annotate, you know, well, it's not getting very Kubernetes-y, but then basically what happens is as part of your application comes up, each pod, which is like the smallest unit of execution in, in, uh, in Kubernetes, gets a little Linkerd, uh, what we call a micro proxy attached to it. And it does it in a way that's transparent to the application. And we do all the kind of network wiring. So all traffic going to that pod goes through this little proxy, right? So you end up with, okay, you know, I've got 50 pods for my application. Each one of those pods has a tiny little micro proxy in it. And the control plane is providing like an API for, uh, you know, kind of managing 
that those proxies as a whole, right? And then that API, you know, which is done in Kubernetes terms, is it allows you to do things like, okay, I want this kind of uh, authentication. I want this kind of traffic routing. Oh, and someone's, you know, talking to service B, I actually want you to dynamically start sending traffic to this other cluster over here because, you know, B is failing or, you know, circuit breaking and like, you know, mutual TLS, all that stuff is kind of wrapped up into that, into that model. So now kind of like who's, because I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to understand like who should be doing what, because I would say, I think kind of the pitch is like, so I'm an application developer, I'm writing my domain code and like my business logic and, you know, I, at least I want to, I want to be like, okay, platform team, like go, you know, go make us secure. Right. And they go off and they, you know, get Linkerd and they get it all going. And so I guess, you know, kind of the configuration, you're kind of getting to the control panel, uh, plane part of it. So like who has to know what and where are things being done? So if I'm the application developer, like, am I still at the, you know, pretty much just working on my domain or just some things like the platform team's going to tell me like, you know, for your service, now you got to do this. Now you got to tell me this. Like, how does that kind of integration and that kind of that flow um, mm-hmm. change with Linkerd? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So ideally, if you're the developer, the only thing the platform team is telling you is, hey, you no longer have to write any retry logic, right? Hey, you can rip out all that TLS, that complicated TLS logic that we made you write. You know, you're, you shouldn't, as a developer, you know, your exposure to the service mesh should be basically like, Hey, these annoying things that you used to have to do that were not even tied to business logic, you don't really need to do them anymore. It's the platform owner. It's, it's the, you know, whoever is building that platform for the developers who is owning and operating the service mesh as part of the platform. Right. Makes sense. And so what are they going to do? So they're, so they've done that part. The application developer is very happy. They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting all my networking retry logic out of here. And then, um, and then they, I assume, are taking in the requirements to be like, okay, these two services should talk to each other and mm-hmm. these shouldn't. So what are they actually doing? Are they editing YAML? Are they editing, are they using a GUI? Like what, like what, how do they do all that? Yeah. So all of Linkerd's um, configuration is expressed ultimately in um, what Kubernetes calls uh, resources or custom resources or, or whatever. So it's basically YAML that gets applied. Well, the way you create these things is often through YAML that's applied to the cluster. Now, are you going in there using a GUI to do that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, are you going in there writing these things by hand? Yeah, maybe. I think in the modern kind of production world, people are really converging on this GitOps approach where you keep the source of truth as YAML files in a repo, and then you have some kind of syncing mechanism that syncs that YAML to the cluster. But one way or another, that configuration is not sitting off in the ether somewhere. It's not sitting off in a, you know, in a GUI. The core, you know, the source of truth is it's living on the cluster itself. Makes sense. So that's good. So at the end of the day, right? I mean, if we do all this right, the application developer is happy. The platform is now secure. And, you know, what you kind of expressed there was even the better. It's like we, our configuration is in source control, probably GitHub or wherever, right? And yeah. we've got our platform experts that are keeping that stuff up to date, right? And it's yeah, like- and then we've got metrics from everything here. So, you know, part of what Linkerd does is, you know, each of those proxies that's sitting next to the application, right? Traffic comes in to that pod and traffic goes out from that pod, right? Those are all going through those, those Linkerd micro proxies, which are written in Rust and they're super fast and efficient, like that's all this cool stuff we could talk about. But they are, first of all, they're instrumenting everything that comes through the pod, right? And they're instrumenting it at the layer seven level. So they are speaking HTTP2, they're speaking gRPC, they're speaking TLS, right? And they're instrumenting the hell out of everything and they're exposing these metrics, which you can then aggregate and get this beautiful layer seven view of like, what is happening in my system? Um, they're applying whatever policies are, are necessary to be applied, whether that's authorization policy or circuit breaking or retries or, or traffic shifting and stuff like that. And, um, and, and the, I think the, the thing we've tried very hard to get to with Linkerd is to make those micro proxies basically an, an implementation detail. So they're not a thing that you have to manage you know, or think about as, as a unit. Like they're just kind of an implementation detail of how Linkerd works, which is very different from like, you know, uh, and the reason I bring this up is when people hear the word proxy, you know, and we struggled a lot with this early on, you think of this really super powerful, super complicated thing where like all this stuff is coming in, we're going to have to, 
you know, monitor its memory usage and tune it based on traffic patterns. And like, we, you know, we tried to like reduce all of that in, in Linkerd. So yes, they are, you know, they're, they're micro proxies, but they're, they're an implementation detail that hopefully use the operator even never really have to worry too much about. Okay. And I guess, you know, too, the benefit there, right. Is like, you know, we're getting all this data. So kind of back to like, either I'm the one running the platform. I, I have, you know, I notice things are going wrong. So I've got a place to go look, see what's happening. Right. Or the networking team, I've got information to give to them or the security team. I got information to them. And then of course, back to the application developers, like, well, if the system isn't running well and you think it's something right. to do with like, they've got tools and diagnostics now to go see what's happening. Right. So that's, that's sort of the goal, right. Is to be like, right. Hey, you got all this information to so go fix the problems that are uncovered. Yeah. Like let's say one of your applications is returning a bunch of 500s, right? That's like, that's a valid HTTP request. It's a valid TCP connection, right? <laughs> yes, but it's it failing and it's returning 500. Yep. Well, nothing in the networking stack is telling you that's a problem. You know, like the only thing that's going to tell you that's a problem is something that understands HTTP, right? And, and can report that, can aggregate that and report it and surface it. And, and that's, that's where Linkerd comes in. All right, good. I think that all makes sense. Now, you know, I don't know, probably the question you get asked all the time, that I'm sure is maybe annoys you. Maybe it doesn't. It's just Istio, right? I think Istio is like, it comes up all the time. It's probably, I would say, the other most popular service mess. Um, please don't email me if you think a third is, because that'll just confuse me. Uh, but you said, you know, I think kind of, you know, and you put this, to your credit, like, I really like this. Like, you put this in uh, your FAQ. And I actually, th- you know, I rarely say this, but like, man, I loved your FAQ. And we'll talk about it. Like, there's, yeah. there's a, a reference of uh, Cardi B's in there. In fact, that's homework for everyone. Go read why Cardi B is in the Linkerd FAQ. And it makes total sense when you read it. Anyway, putting that aside for a second is, uh, you know, I, what would, kind of the, the message there is what's different. And you know, I think you, you kind of make the idea uh, or the, the case that it's uh, simpler and lighter. And so just, you know, kind of for everyone, you know, like kind of thinking about this, like, how do you quantify that? What does simpler and lighter actually mean to someone that's trying to make a decision here on what to use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of our big differentiation from Istio, which, as you point out, is like, uh, you know, a, a service mesh that uh, is in the space. And probably it's the biggest fixture in the landscape because Google, you know, did a whole lot of marketing and IBM did a whole lot of marketing and, and so on. So everyone has heard of that if you're in Kubernetes land. Um, so yeah, our biggest differentiate differentiation for Linkerd simpler and lighter. We measure that in a couple ways and, and faster, you know, uh, we've got a whole set of open source benchmarks that are out there that we've published. So you can like, you know, actually compare the performance on an application A versus B and, you know, Linkerd takes something like you know, just a fraction of the resources, a fraction of the CPU usage, a fraction of the memory usage, especially in the data plane, which is the set of proxies. That's the most important part. Control plane is kind of important, but data plane is the thing that scales as your application scales. So you want to make sure resource usage there is as, as minimal as possible. Um, so we've published all that and the benchmarks, as I say, are open source. You can download and look at them. Um, to me, the more important thing, though, is, is the simplicity component. So there, you know, I think what I would look at is, you know, just the amount of configuration that's required for Linkerd um, versus Istio, whether that's to get started you know, which for Linkerd is zero. Like you literally have to, you know, the moment you install Linkerd, you have mutual TLS happening between all meshed pods by default. You know, you don't have to configure anything. You don't have to add any CRDs or write any YAML. It just works, um, which which is pretty, uh, still kind of amazes me. Um, and then, you know, I think the, the hardest thing to quantify is like, what is the pain and suffering that I'm going to incur as an operational team if I'm on the hook for running this thing in production, right? And, and that's why I was emphasizing so much the kind of um, the, the fact that the Linkerd's micro proxies are so, you know, uh, are designed to be this implementation detail. That's the thing that falls over, you know, in a service mesh. That's the scary bit. That's the thing where if you're on the hook for this in 3 a.m. and like, you know, your proxies are all blowing up, well, now, you know, you got to wake up and, and deal with it. Um, and, that's the hardest thing to, qu- to quantify, but we've poured so much time and energy in Linkerd. I think coming at this as operators ourselves into making sure that this thing is rock solid and, you know, Kubernetes is going to fail long before Linkerd itself is going to fail. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good way to think of it. I like that. So, all right, well, good. Well, hopefully for everyone that wanted to really answer that question, hopefully that was a good answer. Cause I think it's pretty clear now. You can go look at the metrics yourself. I think that's pretty, uh, 
quantitative, if you will. And then qualitative, I think it's one of those things like you got to go try them out, right? You know, see, improve, prove the configuration side yourself. Like there's just kind of like kind of back to what we said before, like there are no easy answers. At some point, you're going to have to decide, like, is this what do you think is easier? There's it's no one. Uh, as I like to say, it's like we can only like working out like you can only talk to a personal trainer for so long before like we're going to have to work out. Like, you know what right. I mean? Like that's <laughs> that's the only way you're going to know if like things work for you. So, yeah, well, like if, you that, have, um, so you, if you have a functioning Kubernetes cluster, I think you can get Linkerd up and running in, in under five minutes. And I don't okay, think there it is. Challenge accepted by not by me, by someone. I want someone. So someone go do that. Someone that has not done it before. I guess we'll make that caveat. And uh, in the software defined talk Slack, you can, you can they can post their experience if it how how well it worked. Now um, let's just kind of like I think we hit on this, but let's just like make sure we so Linkerd uh, license through the CNCF, right? Uh, the governance model is all through CNCF as well. Mm-hmm. So fully open source. Yep. Um, I don't know what else should I say there. It's sort of like you know just one of the the founding graduate graduated projects. Is that kind of the, the story? Yeah, that's right. It's the only service mesh that's graduated. I mean, you know, graduation is like a, a marker and like eventually. Yeah. I don't want to make that whole, like that's a whole nother topic that's yeah. getting a lot of discussion, but it's just, I just want to say it's sort of like it's out there and like you should feel, I guess it's on the open source. You've, I would say I'll give you my, uh, you've done all the right open source stuff, right? It's in a foundation. You can go okay. use it. You're not going to like suddenly run out and change the license and, you know, do all these crazy things, you know? So I think people, um, that's probably, what they need to know. And then, of course, we want to kind of get to your company, right? Because you mentioned at the top, you're the CEO of Buoyant. So what's the connection here? What is Buoyant and how is it all connected to Linkerd? How does it all work? Yeah, so, you know, the goal of Buoyant is, A, to, to you know, continue growing Linkerd and investing in Linkerd and, B, to, uh, to help enterprises adopt Linkerd. So in, you know, startups don't really need our help. You know, mm-hmm. usually they're like, they're, you know, <laughs> like they're, know. They're, they, they know what's going on, but adopting Linkerd in the enterprise is complicated, be- not because Linkerd is complicated, but because absorbing any kind of software into an enterprise environment is complicated. It's all these risk management things and security policies and blah, blah, blah. So that's what we focus on mm-hmm. in, in point. If you are an enterprise and wants a service mesh, we will make you successful with Linkerd and we'll do it in uh, a really amazing way. And the rest of the time, we're just investing in that open source project. Got it. Makes total sense. Okay. All right. Then the other thing on the service mesh side is, is you know, I did some reading on this, but after I read it, I didn't really totally understand it. So I'm going to do the classic host thing. I'm just going to punt this question to you. So <laughs> EBPF, which is uh-huh. impossible for me to, surprisingly hard to spell for me and hard to say. So, but I think, you know, maybe do your best because it seems very esoteric to me, but like maybe do your best here to explain like what it is and like, and more importantly, what do we need to know, if anything, about it? Yeah, I mean, this is a super hot topic in the in the service mesh world right now. Um, so it is a uh, eBPF is a low level kernel technology, like it's part of the Linux kernel. It's relatively new, and it's gotten very popularized by certain companies that are betting their you know <laughs> their their livelihoods on it. But basically, what it allows you to do is run a very limited set of programs in the kernel itself. So, you know, this is getting a little esoteric, but um, for something like, um, you know, network analysis, like let's say you want to count all the IP addresses, you know, or all the packets. uh, It's very hard to do that in user space, right? Like with a regular application, really hard to do that because there's a lot of packets coming in all the time. And every time you ask the kernel, hey, can you, you know, can you give me the latest packet? It's expensive to go back and forth between your application and the kernel. So eBPF allows you to take a bunch of bytecode, has to follow a whole set of very restrictive rules and say, hey, kernel, why don't you just run this for me and then give me the output. And so what that allows you to do in practice, and it's like a super interesting, neat technology, you get a little virtual machine in the kernel, there's a verifier, there's like, you know, the verifier does all these crazy things. But the net effect is some of the network analysis and some of the uh, like... Um, operating system performance analysis or like, you know, profiling and stuff like that now becomes possible, like in a way that wasn't really possible before, because we can push a bunch of that into the kernel, have it be very fast, and then just get the, get the results out of there. Now in service mesh land, right, eBPF is a little, is a little weird, weirder of a story because it allows you to do layer four stuff, you know, very effectively you can't really do layer seven effectively in eBPF, right? And the reason why is because 
or at least you can't today. I mean, you know, maybe in the future, maybe, maybe. Um, but the, the, the verifier, which is a part of the kernel that, um, uh, uh, d- determines, uh, you know, are we going to allow you to run this bytecode? You know, and you have to be very sensitive because you're running in the kernel, right? You feel like if something goes wrong there, <laughs> it's a huge security vulnerability, right? right? So the verifier has to be very restrictive. And so it does stuff like, oh, you can't run more than this many instructions. And I have to, you know, you can't have any unbounded loops. I need to know how every, you know, every possible condition here before I allow you to run this. And all that stuff basically makes it very hard to do uh, anything complicated with state. And so like things like, oh, parsing HTTP2 are basically like, you know, not really possible. You can, uh, can kind of do it, but in, in a very complicated way. So that's all to say um, there's a really, uh, there's a really, uh, the, the reason why this is interesting in the service mesh world is because, hey, can we use this to like offload some of the, the work, right? So that the proxies don't have to do so much work. And instead, we'll do it in, um, you know, in, in the kernel itself. And we took a, I actually wrote a long blog post about this. We took a deep look at this last year. We're keeping an eye on the space, but I, I think it doesn't really buy you. It doesn't really buy you very much. It buys you a little bit. There's some stuff that it buys you. Um, the, the thing that gets confusing is that there are these eBPF service meshes that are out there. And basically what they do is they they do eBPF, which gets you a little bit of stuff. And then they have a um, a proxy at the per host level. So they have one big proxy per node in Kubernetes, which actually is the approach that Linkerd had, you know, very early on. And that ends up being uh, kind of a step backwards for operations and, and for security for a whole bunch of reasons. So, you know, it's a bit of a debate right now. Like, okay, you're saying that's eBPF, but really what you're doing is you're just making these per host proxies. That's actually worse than the sidecar approach. So like, you know, are you being upfront about that? Are you hiding it? Like what's going on here? Um, but that, that's kind of where we are. It's a cool technology. I think Linkerd will do some eBPF stuff. I don't think it'll make a huge difference uh, except in certain limited situations. Um, but that's like a hot topic in the. Yeah, no, it does. So I'll make sure there's a link to your blog post, which I think is really good. Kind of gives an overview. And I think, you know, I think probably, <clears throat> excuse me, as an application developer, you probably just, you know, this is all the domain of your platform team and you kind of stay out of it. And then I think if you are the kind of person that's sort of like deep into this, you probably want to like maybe go read up on it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Yes, I don't know. Every time I hear like we're sticking stuff in the kernel, I'm always like, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm just, in, I'm just immediately worried. So I, well, I don't yeah, know. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you want a kernel debugging problem to be part it's of like, your I don't know. Mesh operational, you know, run book? Uh, no. Um, but, but listen, um, before we get out of here, I, you know, let's. You mentioned it a little bit at the uh, throughout the conversation today, but I thought you know, you know, you're sort of, you know, been you know, building, if you will, infrastructure for a long period of time, and you've, you know. You mentioned Rust before, and I think, you know, Rust has, you, you kind of mentioned you got on board when it was sort of like very new. And I think uh, Rust seems to have, if you will, you know, for, at the risk of like offending people, sort of emerged as like the the new cool, I'm going to call it infrastructure, you know, uh, language. You know, if you're building some type of like, you know, something that has to be, have a lot of performance and more importantly, it's going to be in the infrastructure. Like Rust um, has kind of achieved some status, even to the point I was just double checking this. I believe Rust is now officially you can contribute rust into linux right and uh, after yeah. uh for so long that's just been c or c plus plus and um while there are many other languages it seems like c and c plus plus have mostly dominated the like if you will the lowest level and rust is sort yeah. of doing that so i just wanted your thoughts like you know uh what do you one why do you like rust i think you're a fan and you know what does it offer someone that's a, a systems programmer and, and two like you know i don't know what should we know about it what what should people know about rust that maybe uh especially if they're doing you know, other programming languages yeah yeah so you're right like you know kind of if you're doing systems programming let me i'll define what i mean by that which is you need complete control over the machine or at least as much control as the operating system will, will let you have right it's like i need control over the exact memory that's being allocated, I need control over the exact threading, you know, the exact computations happening. Then you're doing systems programming. And, you know, for us writing a proxy, we want that thing to be as small as possible, as efficient as possible. That's basically a systems programming problem. What Rust gives you is the ability to write code that is as fast, in some cases faster than C or C++, but without the severe and endemic, like, problems, especially when it comes to buffer overflow exploits, you know, and, and other kind of CVE inducing things that come with C and C++. 
basically what we've what we've learned and this is like a human you know it's like a problem with humans it's not yeah. a problem with the languages really <laughs> of it's impossible to write secure c++ code. it's just impossible like the human brain is not capable of doing it so you know you have these systems that have developed over time where you know okay eventually after 30 years of using the c pl- program we've kind of found most of the problems so like it's probably pretty secure right but rust can do that for you up front you know and that's kind of like the the niche that this language occupies. If you care about security and you care about systems programming, then like that's your option, you know, or, or you go back to C and C plus plus and like decide you're going to sacrifice one for the other. That's kind of an inflammatory statement, but <laughs> you know, for, for us, it was a clear choice. You know, we needed these Linkerd micro proxies. Like I said, they're, you know, there's PII going through them. There's financial data. You know, we couldn't have, couldn't write that in C plus plus, not, not, not and feel good about it, but we also had it needed it to be as fast and as lightweight and as performant as possible. So Rust was a natural choice, um, yeah. and I think we'll increasingly see that as like the systems programming language of choice. I think it's basically the future. In many ways, it's the future of, of cloud computing because we have to. We can't keep writing insecure software, right? Like it's not an, it's not an option for the future. Yeah, well, I think you hit on all the important things there too. It's like we can't do that, and then uh, I. <laughs> Your acknowledgement, which I just I just endorse, is like I mean maybe no, maybe I should say it this way: it can be done, but only maybe the smartest human beings on earth are able to like write C and C plus plus in a way that you know just no vulnerabilities. Because it just it just seems like for the mere mortal, you're going to make mistakes. Like we have like there's plenty of history. You don't have to trust me. Go back look at all the history. And two, you know, just kind of as I talk to more and more people, like building like projects like yourself, like uh, Rust comes up over and over, right? Like lots of people are making the same decisions just for the reasons you talked about. We want to have, if you will, maximum, let's, maybe that's a way to even call it. Like you want maximum control, right? And, you know, uh, and, and you really think that's important in your project, then I almost hear Rust is almost always the the language and the platform that they're, they've chosen going forward. So makes total sense to me. Um, all right, well, listen, you know, I think we're, we're pretty much running out of town, but if someone wants to, uh, you know, ask you about how to get a Twitter handle. No, if they want to ask you about uh, <laughs> link or D questions, uh, maybe how to get started with buoyant. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe they want to ask you about rust. Maybe they want you to like, give them some uh, tricks about that. How can they find you? I know that I've already mentioned Twitter, but maybe uh, what's other ways they should find them or resources that you would point them towards. Yeah, certainly for Linkerd, you know, we've got a website, linkerd.io. And for Buoyant, you know, you can email me, william at buoyant.io. Just make sure you spell it right. It's B U O Y I'm happy to, you know, or find me on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. I'm happy to have a conversation. I've said, I've peppered this podcast with several inflammatory statements. And I, you know, and, and things are definitely going to make people unhappy. And I haven't given you a signal about why. So, you know, that's like that's what we want controversy sells get ready for the flame wars i like it Um, bring it on bring bring them all on and uh i've only spelled buoyant wrong like every single time i've typed it so yeah so so what i'm going to do for everyone is i'm gonna put all the links in the show notes so that way you can just click on them and i'll make sure they're spelled right there um and so william thanks a lot for coming on the show today i really appreciate it thank you for having me it was great to be here and for everybody else, if this is your first time listening to Software Defined Talk, then welcome. And you should just subscribe right now in the software, uh, in the podcast player that you're using. Also, if you would like a sticker, just send your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, we will talk to you next time.